Hello and welcome to Radio Ombudsman in lockdown. And this is Rob Barron saying hello from a sunny northwest London. And I'm delighted to say that we have a very distinguished guest today, Lord Victor Adibawola. You're very welcome. I hope I've got that right. Probably not. It's a good attempt. It's good old Yorkshire name. It's pronounced Adibawali. Uh... Adibawali. Thank you. Our guest is very well known. He'll be known to lots of you. I was just saying he's the first guest on Radio Ombudsman to have already appeared on Desert Island Discs. I think he must be the first person on Desert Island Discs to have chosen a combination of Edward Elgar and The Stranglers, which uh, is a great combination. Uh, he's had a magnificent career, which we'll talk about. He, he's been the, 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 the dynamic force behind the social care charity Turning Point. He was the boss of Centrepoint. Uh, he is now a, uh, a member of the House of Lords, a crossbench peer, and uh, most important for us, he is the chair of, of the NHS Confederation. And the chief executive, Niall Dixon, says of him, Victor is an experienced, passionate and exceptional ambassador for integration and for tackling health inequalities. So we've got the person we want to talk to today. Thank you very much for joining us. We always start off by asking people about their background, where they came from, and, and the kind of values they were brought up with. So would you mind starting starting there? Well, I mean, I was brought up by a, a nurse, pretty much single parent, in Wakefield. She is still very much alive, and uh, uh, she taught us all, actually, the, the um, hard work, integrity, strong values of fairness, and, um, well... What can I say? She's a nurse, right? Yeah. <laughs> so she taught me about what matters in life. Taught us all, actually. And uh, those, those lessons have stuck with us. They've stuck, they've stuck with me. You, you're one of those very famous people who didn't do very well in their A-levels. Right? Or maybe that's just a rumour. I, I don't know. I did well enough. But, I don't, but no, I'm not... I'm not uh, uh, you know, I'm afraid it won't be one of those interviews that starts off with... Uh, and then you went up to Oxbridge. When did you begin to feel that you knew what you were going to do? Um, actually, I've always had a notion of what I wasn't going to do, actually. <laughs> you decide what it is that you don't want to do, because I've always been oyster, basically. So <laughs> I kind of ruled out a load of things that I didn't want to do, um, and ended up doing something that I did want to do. And then luck played a, a big role, you know, and a bit of hard work and, uh, you know, chance favouring the prepared mind. Uh, but actually, it was more a list of things that I didn't want to do. I've tried a few things in my life, and I've uh, ones that I didn't want to do. I'm afraid I've left in the past. <laughs> so, yeah. So you, you clearly had um, a passion for the voluntary sector and for social care from a very early age. It was a case of, uh, do I really, you know, it's a case of I want to do something that matters and that's something to do with Maslow's hierarchy. So, uh, you know, that's what I did. I, the voluntary sector, as you put it, in social care, health, housing, all means to an end, really. I would, you know, I, I would have done it in any sector. But that was the sector that, that that spoke to me, spoke to my values. So I'm interested in in the fact that you didn't go into government or or, or the civil service or local government. You went you went into the third sector. I mean, was that deliberate or? It was well deliberate. I'm always a bit suspicious of career plans, but I did I did work for um, I did work for local government for many years. I worked for Newark. As a housing right. 
and I enjoyed right. it, taught me a lot. Uh, the voluntary sector, for me, I guess, uh, I left and worked for Patchwork and uh, Centrepoint, um, and, you know, they it offered a greater sense of freedom, I guess, entrepreneurialism. It didn't seem like something that was possible. I mean, it's really odd, actually, but I didn't, I, it never crossed my radar as, a, um, as a, an endeavour. And I, I actually had a sneaky feeling I probably wouldn't have progressed in, in, um, in the civil service. I certainly wasn't yeah. on the factory. <laughs> was not much yeah. So you, you went to Centrepoint, but then you, you went to Turning Point. And uh, in some sense, Turning Point was a, a defining moment for you because you transformed an organisation that was in, in, in a very difficult place. Well, it's kind of you to say that. Um, I always think that I've put together a series of teams who've transformed organisations over, over many years. Um, turning Point is social enterprise. I know you referred to it as a charity. It is a registered charity, but it, oper- it doesn't raise, it doesn't fundraise, it operates, it's a business, it just doesn't have shareholders and dividends. But yeah. um, over 20 years, we, we, did, we did grow the business, we did extend its reach uh, to more people. I think at the moment it's looking at... Um, what, 100,000 clients in 300 locations and employees, I think it was damn it, 4,000 people, um, which is just some growth over a period of time. But, you know, I worked with an amazing group of people over that time, and, and, there's, and there are amazing people running it. And, um, you know, I'm always a bit, I don't think it was, uh, it was down to me, me alone, this thing, a hero standing wide and wide leg with a lead guitar. I don't, I, you know, it was a great organisation with, with a great team, and I was lucky enough to work with What was it, or is it, about the culture of that organisation that is so people-centred? Because that's unusual. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, for me, uh, culture eats... Uh, there's a saying, isn't there? Culture eats structure for breakfast. Well, I've always believed that, ultimately. Um, it's, about, it's about the vision, it's about the values, it's about you know, the culture, structure, operation. They have to be aligned. I've always strongly believed that at the end of the day, what you leave behind as a leader um, are the values that you inculcate in a, in a system or an organisation. So I always started there. I always end there, basically. You know, it's about leadership. That's what they're paying, that's what they're paying me for. So yeah. That's what I try and do. Try so and do. We, we, we've been doing this big project on compliance handling in the NHS and what we've found when we've gone around is that the people who actually handle complaints don't have a great deal of confidence that the leaders in NHS organisations understand the difficulty of what they have to do and don't put enough support or resource into improving it and that stops them doing the best that they think they can do. So clearly leaders uh, have a key role to play in encouraging the NHS to take complaints more seriously than is currently the case. How do you think we can address that together with the NHS? Well, um, obviously, as chair of the NHS Confederation, which represents the the waterfront of NHS bodies, NHS trusts, acute trusts, mental health trusts, primary care, secondary care, integrated care systems, primary care networks, a lot. I know that the majority of my members, well, want to take complaints seriously. I think there's a number of things going on here. First of all, over a very long period of time, I think the NHS uh, has not been, it hasn't developed a true learning culture. 
You're saying that's there's commitment. I think there but is. It doesn't always, it doesn't always translate. It doesn't. So let me tell you that what, I, what I think about that. I think there's a difference between individual commitment and um, uh, system bureaucracy and culture. So yeah. I've yet to meet a, a leader in the NHS who isn't committed to doing the best for their patients. So that's the honest, honest truth. Um, doesn't matter where they are. What I think happens is, is the culture that surrounds them which it tends to be risk-averse in a negative way. So and what I mean by that is it, it's risk-averse in, in, in favour of the bureaucracy rather than the patient. And, and at, at the end of the day, it's the patient that enters any health institution that's taking more risk than the institution. Right? So that's the problem. And then you have a kind of, there is a, a we still haven't, although I think there are efforts to move this, we still don't have a comprehensive and sustained learning culture in which, you know, mistakes will be made in complex systems. The question is, can we learn from them so that we don't repeat them? And there's been a several attempts to create the no wrong door, the, the airline approach where, you know, you, you take human factors into account. I think, and then, and then you've got things like the uh, Guardian, the speaking the speak out Guardian. And these, in the, given the length of time that the NHS has been running, are still fairly early interventions and they're surrounded by a political context which is incredibly blaming. I mean, it is. And so that drives into the system and the same culture and to coin a phrase, a fish does rot from the head. So it is not just the NHS on its own as a set of institutions. It's the NHS um, as a set of institutions within the context of a policy framework, within the context of a political framework. And they all interact to create quite a complex set of relationships. And the patient isn't always seen or isn't always recognised and isn't always heard. But I think there has been moves in the last few years to start putting the patient and the citizen at the centre of the NHS. Um, but there's still a way to go. I will, you know, I will, I will not. Um, there's still a way to go. And I think the, con the CONFED and your organisations could do more to highlight the best practice, I hate the term best practice, but, but highlight where things are going well, where there are yeah. things can be learned, where leadership is um, aligned and systemic. Uh, and I think that's the way to go, rather than beating people over the head. I don't think that works. It has the opposite effect, I think. People hide things. There, there are two things that come out of that that I want to ask you about. One, in a minute, is about health inequalities and the challenge that that brings with it. But the other is actually about the defensiveness of the NHS culture. And one of the things that concerns me is that we've been talking about a need to have a more sensitive environment for whistleblowers for the last 10 years. Yeah. And yet I get lots of doctors who are very critical of the NHS, quite rightly, because when they've drawn safety matters to the attention of the management in the NHS, the tables have been turned on them and they've been hounded out of, of work and sometimes out of their careers. And there's no, to me, there's no sign that that has improved in the last five years. Mm. And that's not to say that the Speak Up Garden isn't doing very good things in, mm. in trying to move things on. But when you actually blow the whistle, they're very much on their own. 
and, and they, they have been taken to the cleaners by management boards in the NHS. Well, you have a very difficult job, actually. I, I was thinking about why you were putting the question to me, in a way, because uh, the, the, the thing that only ever comes across your desk is bad news. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. You only ever see the failure. There are, and I agree with you, we have a long way to go to move the needle in favour of, of learning. And there is a risk-averse culture in some places. And there's cultures where the bureaucracy is seen as the same as accountability. And the bureaucracy is not the same as accountability. So, you know, to my previous point, I do think that the sustained effort to bring to, to, bring to bear accountability as opposed to bureaucracy, to build relationships as opposed to just objectives, and to um, show what can be done um, to improve patient care when a relationship and accountability are aligned with vision and values. I think that's the work that's got to be done. And I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we're there or that, or that the, um, the NHS has um, learned all its lessons. It hasn't. And it's only recently, in my experience, that the attention that, you, that has been given to this has been taken seriously. I mean, throughout the system. And I would argue that it takes a while for people to understand that, A, we're serious, B, the change needs to be made, which is systemic and not just sort of words, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that people who blow the whistle will be protected and will be looked after, and that will be the expectation. So, you know, this is a, an ongoing story. It is, not, it is not easy, and it's certainly not going to be quick. If I could suggest politely that you're not quite right in saying that I only deal with bad news. I mean, the challenge for an ombudsman is actually to use the good news as a, an incitement to good practice across both the health service and the public service. And if we don't do that, then we risk alienating the very leaders that we need to be on side with in order to make the reforms that you're talking about. What's so it needs a balanced approach. No, no, well, forgive me. I mean, uh, I certainly agree with everything that you just said. I mean, the ombudsman, it's not an English word, is it? Um, no. It, it refers to a, quite an ancient notion of fairness and accountability. I guess um, you, you, you can tell me, you know, uh, my, my sense is that people get go to the ombudsman to complain rather than... To, it's so so that, that was what I meant. It wasn't... No, no, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Okay, let's move on to health inequalities, and then I want to talk about social inclusiveness as well. So the challenge for the NHS in addressing health inequalities is really very complex, isn't it? Yeah. Because the people who most need the service are often the ones who are least likely to want to use it. Yeah. In your experience of drawing people in, which is, my, you know, is as good as anybody's, what are the key issues in trying to, to get to the bottom of that? Yeah. Well, I'm quite struck, you know, the Julian Tudor Hart statement, the, the inverse care law, you know, that, that, that those people in need of health and social care the most tend to get it the least, seems to me has, has always been a driving force for me, my work in health and social care, because it's, it's basically a crime. It's outrageous, you know, because the NHS wasn't started by the likes of you and me. It wasn't started in Westminster. They, the people who got it up and running, they weren't, they weren't bingo to Oxbridge. It was started in a village in Tredegar for poor people, actually, or at least the working poor. And the middle classes have benefited by default by its expansion and its inclusion. 
and therefore we should we should be really concerned about uh, the possibility that we end up with a system that was designed for the poor that benefits the middle class at their expense. Not yeah. least because it's immoral, and secondly, it's expensive. It is not cheap. And the fact that a woman in Barking and Dagenham has an active life expectancy of 55, and a woman in Richmond upon Thames has an active life expectancy of over 70, that's that's an expensive way to run a health system. So, if you want to reverse it, then I think um, we have to do the following things. First of all, we have to look at population health as a whole across a place. Secondly, we have to create the incentives that actually mean that people get rewarded for reducing that gap rather than ignoring it or even increasing it. And thirdly, we have to look at our care care pathways and our design of care pathways, things like cancer and mental health and diabetes, as inclusive of those people rather than exclusive of them. And then finally, when we look at commissioning of services, we have to define it in such a way that commissioners are held account for a definition of commissioning, which is basically about understanding the needs of an individual and or a community such that you can build a credible platform for procurement and contracting rather than just procuring the cheapest. That doesn't work. So I think there's an an accountability and a focus question. Certainly 91% of my members of the CONFED think that inequality um, and inequity are uh, number one. They're, They're really, really concerned about it. And COVID has drawn, you know, double, triple red lines across and around that, that issue now. We, we have to fix it. It's not, it's not going to go away. Is it, is it necessary to have a, a leadership in the health service that is representative of the community that it serves in order to li- deliver the things that you're talking about? I think it helps. This is a tricky one because it'd be easy for me to say yes, but it's self-evident that we don't. So therefore, it's it's beholden on those people who do lead to understand the people that they lead. And to put it bluntly, they get paid for leading all the people all the time, everywhere. They don't get paid for leading leading some of the people some of the time, somewhere. (laughs) And that means that they have to put in place the mechanisms that ensure that they understand they have line of sight as to what's going on at community level, uh, that, that that drives what happens in, in systems, like integrated care systems. So people people should, the leadership, in a sense, what I've just said about what, what needs to happen is that leaders need to get a line of sight to what's happening on the ground. They need to ensure that, that the mechanisms by which they understand uh, commission services uh, are those that understand individual and community need. They must, they must ensure that the accountability structures mitigate towards those people at the sharp end of the inverse care law rather than the way around, and they must assure that the levers, the financial levers and other levers, do the same. If they do that, then that would be a major shift forward. I would argue, that, and this is just a matter of organisational health, that decision-making is best made when in diverse groups, and there's lots of research to back that up. So if you have a monopoly, you like to make monocultural decisions, which are in the favour of leading everyone everywhere. So I suppose what I'm saying is two things. Leaders should lead everyone everywhere <laughs> all the time. And you're better off if you have a diverse team and you're even more better off if that team has people who understand what it means to be at the bottom. But just being, just coming from a poor background or being black alone isn't a qualification. Two, two things, please. One is... Training and education in the health service need to be aligned to the strategic ambitions 
of the sector, otherwise it's never going to uh, deliver what, what you're talking about. I and agree. That, that's, I mean, my experience of looking, for example, at anorexia education is that it's horribly fragmented, that you can't pull a lever and change things because there's so many different regulatory bodies that have responsibility for the curriculum and education and so on, and different levels of clinicians. Do you ever get frustrated at the fragmented nature of the, the health service and its regulation? I, I do, actually, and I don't think I'd be the only one. But there are lots of processes in the NHS, lots of them. And one of the problems about processes is that they don't always match the intentions. <laughs> so what you've described is, is a laudable intention, the intention being that you know, anorexia services and um, anorexia education should be designed to provide the best possible treatments and care pathways for anorexics. And regardless, it should be consistent, yeah. right? But over time, what happens is processes get put in place that bear no relation to the intention, and the process becomes more important than the intention. And so I always take the view, whenever I see complexity in care pathways, services, whatever, I always ask myself, what was the, what was the, what's the intention here? What, what is the intention? And then I match that intention with the processes in place. And if there's a mismatch, and there usually are, one can be safe in, in deleting the intention, the processes that don't meet that intention. And if you do yeah. that, only do you save money, but you, but you provide more efficient services. But I'm afraid the health and care system is riddled. It's partly a, a, a um, it's not its fault in that sense. It's partly a product of having a complex system, which has been going for a long time. Um, yeah. But but I think that focus on what is the intention here does tend to sort of focus the mind and, and, and clean out the process cobwebs, as it were. How serious, uh, this is perhaps a bit fatuous, but how serious is, is COVID to the ambitions that you're talking about? Because the NHS is under huge pressure of yeah. stress and resource in order to deal with this. It's, yeah. it's, it's setting back strategic movement forward considerably, isn't it? it well, it is and it isn't. I mean, um, the, the Confederation's been really focused on um, what we call reset because, you know, nearly 50,000 people, more than 50,000 people probably will have died as a result of COVID. And, yeah. you know, we've got to learn from that that, that, that it'd be a crime and, and a travesty if we didn't. So there are a number of things that, that, that we've... Um, with our members have really focused on, and I suppose they might be summarised in three three things. First of all, the NHS, we have to be honest with the public about what the NHS can and will do over time. We have to be honest with them. I think that's the polit politicians have to be honest. We have to be honest with them. Secondly, we have to focus, really focus on inequality and inequity because that is not only is it wasteful, it undermines the purpose and the trust that people rightly have in the NHS. And I think the third thing we need to do is make sure that we resource it properly <laughs> and stop debating, arguing the, the, the sort of at the edges of, of what the NHS needs. We, we need to fund it properly. You know, it is still, as, we, as I speak, one of the, if not the most efficient health system in the world. The alternatives do not bear thinking about in terms of personal financing. In the US, 50% of all bankruptcies are caused by health costs. So yeah. we, we have a good system here, and I think we should just remind ourselves 
how valued and valuable it is. I mean, I mean this in personal economic terms as much as I do moral and political terms. And COVID, COVID has been a real wake-up call. It has, it has shaken. So, and what I mean by that is um, it's been noted that we've had five years of digital innovation take place since March 31st. Yes. Now, that is tremendous change, which is changing the way in which we deliver health services. By and large, for the good. We need to be careful that it doesn't leave people behind, but by and large, it's for the good. And the second thing I've noticed that COVID has done is that it's forced people to work together. You know, it's really forced local government to work with health in a way that they just wouldn't have done before. You know, taking years to build the sort of trust that's now been developing across boundaries, but not just at the sort of political level, for want of a better word. You know, teams are working together better in hospitals, um, across the health and social care settings. So, the, you know, the truth is revealed sometimes in a crisis. And what's being revealed is is that actually it's not, it's not, we, we can learn, we can change, we can develop, we could come out of this better. Um, and we have done crisis before in this country have resulted in better services. And I do re- believe that that could happen with the NHS. Okay, well, we, we're coming to the end, so I don't want to keep you. Incidentally, my great-grandfather was a rabbi in Tradiga, so I, I claim some uh, uh, historical relation to the foundation of the NHS in a way. Um, uh, but leaving that aside, we want to know what you are most proud of in terms of your, your career to date. I mean, the, the short answer is still being here you know my career isn't over yet <laughs> so i'm proud i've gathered uh, some deep learning about systems and organizations and people and leadership i'm proud of what i've absorbed and i'm proud of the people that i've worked with actually i have to say that i am really proud of, of the people that i've worked with and got to know as colleagues and then as friends i don't really i'm not one for ticking off you know i'm really really proud that I did it because I just know it's never just you, right? And yeah, if, yeah, yeah. Then it's probably going to fail. <laughs> so I'm not one for ticking, ticking off like that. I don't think I don't think life works like that, you know. Totally okay, that, that's fair enough. But uh, the last question, I won't allow you to deflect in, in, in that way. So there are a lot of young graduates who work for PHSO in Manchester and in, in London, you know, we must have 250, 300 people in their 20s working for the organisation at the yeah. beginning of their career. What message would you give to them? What advice would you give to them about sustaining their careers and, and sticking to their principles, which you've managed to do? Well, that's a fairly easy one. I'll tell them what I told myself or what somebody told me that's stuck in my mind, actually for a long time, but I can't who told me now so long. The, the, answer, the, the answer is retain a healthy level of self-doubt alongside ambition, basically. Wow. That's, that's it. And always work with people who have self-doubt and ambition. If they don't have self-doubt, they're probably sociopaths, and if they don't have ambition, they do work. So I'm, that's, fairly, that's, that's fairly straightforward. I mean, I'll tell you what is encouraging, the very fact that you've got graduates wanting to work for you, is an indication to me that we are you onto something. You know, at the moment you've got people who want to work with you on this. You know, the, the future's in the young. It's an obvious statement, but I do think that the very fact that that is happening is a culture shift in itself. 
That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for no. being so frank. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. This is Rob Behrens from Radio Ombudsman saying uh, goodbye and stay safe. Cheers. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.